Welcome to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Carolyn Kuski, Executive Director at the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Carolyn's research has examined multiple aspects of disaster insurance markets, the National Flood Insurance Program, federal disaster aid and response, and policy responses to potential changes in extreme events with climate change. I'm very proud to say that Carolyn was a colleague of mine at Resources for the Future for a number of years, and she continues her connection with RFF as a university fellow. We've talked about having Carolyn on Resources Radio since the inception of the program, and I'm really pleased that we're making it happen now. And Carolyn and I will be talking about resilience to natural disasters, particularly flooding, whether our system of funding for that resilience is working, and for whom, and what other options the U.S. might want to consider. Stay with us. Carolyn, welcome to Resources Radio. It's great to talk with you this morning. It's great to be here. Great. Um, Well, I wanted to kick things off by asking you to tell our listeners a bit more about your background. And in particular, how did you come to focus on risk as part of your economics training? Yeah, I actually started thinking about flooding and natural disasters a little bit by accident, but I did grow up in St. Louis, Missouri, which is right by the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. And so flooding was part of the conversation when I was a kid. And I even remember going to see some neighborhoods and roads that had been flooded out in the large uh, Midwestern floods of 1993. So I guess I circled back to that uh, early exposure to thinking about disasters. Um, When I was in the middle of working on my dissertation is when Hurricane Katrina hit. And I got Mm. pulled into some research with my advisor that I ended up finding fascinating and shifted a lot of my work to thinking about how we manage natural disaster risk. Mm. That is very interesting. I I want to note for our listeners in one brief sidebar, how many people start by explaining how they ended up where they are by noting the element of chance or just sort of following opportunities that comes with that. So again, you're in good company of people who sort of taken opportunities when they come and, and shaped their careers accordingly. I just want to reassure all our young listeners out there that you can just kind of figure out things as you go. It's always a good way forward. Yeah, and things do snowball. So I wrote one of yeah. my dissertation chapters on flood insurance. And I mm-hmm. think if you'd asked me then, I never would have thought that I would have spent the next, you know, 10, 15 years thinking about flood insurance, but yep. I have, and here we yep. are. <laughs> and here we are, yeah. yeah. Um, well, so obviously today, the subject of today's podcast is fundamentally on climate risk associated with extreme weather events in a changing climate. And as I imagine all of our listeners know, um, the number of extreme weather events is in fact predicted to rise as the climate continues to change. And many of these extreme events have to do with water, of course, either too much of it leading to flooding or too little of it, which can lead to drought or conditions that can lead to increased risk for wildfire and more. So given your particular expertise in flooding, um, I wanted to start there and maybe ask if you could just kind of explain a bit about how the system works. How do property owners actually protect themselves against flood risk? Yeah, good question. A lot of what I focus on is the financial recovery of households from disaster events like big floods and how they pay for all the damage that flooding can cause. Um, As you noted, you know, 
flooding is a very serious risk for our country and is actually responsible for the most damage of any other natural disaster that the U.S. faces. Um, recovery can be really difficult, and getting the money to rebuild is one part of the challenge. So if you are an extremely affluent family, perhaps you have enough money in your savings account to fund your rebuilding. But for the majority of Americans, that's not the case. In fact, 44% of Americans don't have $400 in liquid funds for an emergency. And so if you don't have $400 for an emergency, you certainly don't have the thousands, tens of thousands, even much more that you need to rebuild your home and replace your contents once you've suffered a really severe flood event. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have money in the savings, account, what do you do? And actually, the first line of defense for victims of a disaster from the federal government is not the sort of free cash that people think of as federal disaster aid, but is actually a loan. And that's administered through the Small Business Administration. And it's Business Administration, but these loans go to households too. But mm -hmm. taking on debt isn't, you know, that can be really good for some people and a useful way to recover. But for some folks, particularly those at the lower end of the income distribution, taking on additional debt is actually really burdensome, right? You still have to repay that debt. They might already be maxed out on debt. And for some, they actually don't even qualify for the loans because they don't meet basic um, debt-to-income ratio thresholds, credit score testing, and so forth. So loans aren't always the answer either, particularly for low-income families. And then that brings you to sort of what people usually think of as the traditional disaster aid, which are the grants that um, come from FEMA. Now, those grants, though, it's important to recognize are limited in a number of ways. So the first is they're not always available. So for that program to be activated, the president has to issue a disaster declaration. And so it's only for big events. But not only that, in over 90% of disaster declarations, the president authorizes what's called public assistance, which is aid to local governments to help clean up debris and you know get infrastructure back up and these sorts of things. But less than half of the time does the president authorize individual assistance, which is grants to households. So it really does take sort of a very serious event to get this program activated. And so small-scale localized flooding won't qualify for this at all. When the program uh, does begin operating, the grants are limited at a little over $30,000, and they're designed to make homes safe and habitable again after disaster, not bring you back to pre-disaster conditions. So I like thinking of it like if you had a big hole in your roof from debris going through it during a severe storm, the program would pay to like cover the roof so that there's not rain in your house, but not to completely replace your roof to the way it was, right? So for that type of recovery, which is what people need, um, you actually have to have insurance. And when it comes to flooding, that gets into a whole tricky thing about flood insurance in this country. Yeah. Yeah. So it does seem like ultimately sort of insurance ends up being the fallback for a lot of people to cover the majority of their costs after one of these disasters. So can you tell us a little bit more about how the insurance programs work? Yeah, sure. And flood insurance is actually primarily provided by the federal government. So most folks who own a home or have a mortgage take out standard homeowners insurance. But it's not always widely appreciated that those standard homeowners policies 
exclude flooding. So to be covered for flood, you actually have to purchase a separate policy, a flood insurance policy. And for a long time, the private sector wasn't willing to offer flooding because it's such a catastrophic and difficult risk. Um, and so the federal government stepped in over 50 years ago and set up the National Flood Insurance Program. This program's designed as a partnership between the federal government and local governments. So communities can voluntarily opt in. And when they do, they have to adopt some minimum floodplain management regulations. And then once they do that, all members of their community become eligible to purchase flood insurance through the National Flood Insurance Program, which is housed in FEMA. And right now, almost all communities at risk of flooding have opted into this program. There's a little over 5 million policies in force nationwide. Mm -hmm. Okay, so most people get flood insurance through this National Flood Insurance Program. But do most people, in fact, have coverage, period? Is it mandatory? Does everyone have to have yes, flood insurance? So Okay. Good question, yes. Um, so early on in the program's history, very few people were actually purchasing flood insurance. So Congress adopted what's referred to as the mandatory purchase requirement. And that's essentially a requirement that if you have a federally backed loan or you take out a loan from a federally regulated lender for property that's located in the mapped 100-year floodplain, so as part mm -hmm. of this program, FEMA maps 100-year floodplains around the country. These are areas that they estimate have at least a 1% annual chance of flooding in any given year. So if you have um, one of these qualifying loans in this area, you're required to have flood insurance for the life of the loan. The problem is that almost anyone else doesn't actually purchase flood insurance that often. So take-up rates among people who have to voluntarily purchase it are really low. Mm. And that's a problem because that 100-year floodplain designation from FEMA does not capture everybody who's at risk. So much bigger floods can and do occur that go beyond the boundaries of the 100-year floodplain. Those 100-year floodplain maps are often based on outdated data, outdated methods, and so they're often not fully accurate depictions of the 100-year floodplain in the first place. And they also tend to not do a good job of capturing stormwater risk, so just heavy rainfall events. And Actually, we see in the data, and climate scientists tell us that this is projected to continue with climate change, that more and more of our rain is coming as these intense downpours. And what that means is that it can overwhelm local drainage and infrastructure. And so you can get flooding even if you're really far away from a coast or a river. And lots of communities are now struggling with this type of sort of heavy rainfall-induced flooding. And you might not even be in a mapped 100-year floodplain and be subject to that type of flooding. So there's a lot of people at risk who aren't subject to the mandatory purchase requirement, but from a risk perspective, probably still need flood insurance. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, I also have a, an, sort of another general curiosity question for you. So I'm, insurance is something that is a little bit of a mystery to me, no matter how long I've had it or how many types of insurance I've had over my lifetime. And I'm, I'm, I want to ask for something as sort of unpredictable and uh, potentially catastrophic as flood risk. How do insurance companies go about setting prices? How does the National Flood Insurance Program, how do private insurers do that? How do they actually put a dollar amount on what they're going to ask a policyholder to pay? Yeah, that's a good question. And you're not alone. We found that insurance is a really unintuitive product for a lot of people because it's not like 
almost anything else you buy, right? <laughs> and so, you know, the basic idea of insurance is that you pay an annual premium of a smaller amount so that when a triggering event, so like a particular type of disaster that you're covered for happens, you have access to the money that you need to pay for those damages. Um, setting the price of insurance requires doing some sophisticated modeling, right, of the likelihood of those types of different hazards happening and how much damage you know, properties are likely to sustain. At the time that the flood insurance program was created, our methods for doing that were quite crude. But over the last 50 years, they've really developed with much better data, much better technology, computing power. I mean, if you just think about the changes in data and technology we've seen, even in the last, say, five to 10 years, um, you can get a sense of how transformative that's been. And, and insurance companies use these sort of more sophisticated models. Unfortunately, the pricing right now in the National Flood Insurance Program is stuck in sort of 1970s-based approaches to rating. That's about to change, though. So the Flood Insurance Program has an effort underway to modernize their rating. They're referring to it as Risk Rating 2.0, and it should be rolling out um, sometime in 2021, which will be important for sort of modernizing the program. That is fascinating. Does it have a climate overlay as part of it? Are they actually taking that into account in new ways in this version 2.0? Well, that's a really interesting question about where, and it gets to this bigger issue of where insurance intersects with climate, um, which is that insurance typically is a one-year product. So it only prices for this year, right? And so it's really important that insurance pricing be able to take account of all the climate changes that have occurred to date, you know, and we're seeing impacts from climate right now already, right? This isn't a future issue anymore. It's a today issue. And so we need to take account of all of that. But insurance is never going to be a tool to send price signals on, you know, the risk in 10, 50 years down the line. And so it is limited in its ability to sort of bring future climate into decision-making. Interesting. Okay. Okay. There was one other thing I wanted to mention, which was sort of why disasters are sort of more challenging to insure in general than other types of insurance, because I think it helps explain some of the problems you see in the National Flood Insurance Program right now. I hadn't mentioned yet, but the program is billions of dollars in debt um, and in need of some financial reforms. But part of the difficulty is that disasters have sort of lots of maybe quiet years where there's no disaster, and then there can be a really devastating event. And disasters are spatially correlated. So when one person sustains damage, everyone in the community does as well, right? And that means that in order to pay all those claims and not go bankrupt, an insurance company has to have access to a lot of capital in those disaster years to make those payments. And that's really different than something like auto insurance, right? So every year, a few people get in car accidents. And if I get in a car accident, it doesn't make it more likely that my neighbors got in car accidents. And so insurers can more or less cover any claim from the premiums they take in that year. That's sort of the basic concepts of risk pooling, right? But disasters, it's actually hard to do that for because in these really, really severe years, 
lots of members of your risk pool are going to be suffering losses. Sure. And so you need access, yeah, to that capital. And so insurers do this in a number of ways. They have their own sort of versions of savings accounts, right? Kind of setting aside surplus. They have their own insurance. So insurance companies purchase insurance from reinsurers. Just same concept. <laughs> I find that before. a fascinating concept. Yeah, yep. exactly. Okay. <laughs> just kind of keep passing the risk. That's you know, right. These risk transfer. Yeah. And then they're also doing sort of more sophisticated things, putting risk into the financial markets through insurance-linked securities and other types of things like that. But all of those things cost money, and that has to be passed on in the price of insurance. And so disaster insurance is just fundamentally more expensive than other types of insurance. Sure. And yeah, and it's and it's hard for even a government program to get around that. And so in the flood insurance program, you see this tension, right, between what might be sort of risk-based pricing and making sure that insurance is available and affordable to people. And if we kind of circle back to what we talked about at the beginning about the limitations of how to pay for recovery in terms of not having enough savings and not being able to take on more debt, the people who really need insurance the most are lower income families that don't have other sources of recovery, and yet they're the ones that are least able to afford it. Um, so I think there's this real need for policy reform to make insurance something that low income families can have access to. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's actually a great lead into my next question because I have been familiar enough with the National Flood Insurance Program to know that it is significantly in debt. And it sounds like one of the reasons that it may be in debt is because um, the program is actually subsidizing, in a certain sense, subsidizing costs in order to keep premiums at a level that people can afford. It is, in fact, subsidizing some of those costs for households. Do I have that right? Or why? Can you say a little bit more about why it's in debt? Yeah, so it's a long been a tension in the program, right? This sort of risk-based pricing versus wanting individuals, you know, to sort of cost share some of their recovery in mm -hmm. a sense, right? Um, so if you, we talked about that 100-year floodplain map at the beginning, whenever there's, those maps are updated, if that 100-year floodplain is seen to have expanded, right, because of changing risk conditions, which could be increased development in the watershed, sea level rise, you know, whatever it is, um, and you're now designated at a higher risk than you were before, you can actually keep a lower risk rate if you purchase insurance before the map change. And so then there's those, that's called grandfathering. So there's a group of policyholders that are actually at higher rate that are paying lower risk rates. So there are these sort of classes of policyholders that are getting explicitly lower costs on their insurance. But then more broadly, to kind of come back to some of the rating changes that are underway, Right now, insurance in the NFIP is based on these broad risk zones that are in these maps, and that just creates a lot of cross-subsidies within these zones. And so as the program moves to more risk-based pricing at a property level, some of those cross-subsidies um, will kind of get undone a little bit. And so this will probably make insurance a little bit expensive, more expensive for some people, but it'll also mean it's a lot cheaper for others who are kind of... Hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. And one important point, I'm actually just kind of coming back to this equity issue about why some of these rating reforms are really necessary and I hope are allowed to go through is that right now there's a little bit of a perverse cross-subsidy in the flood insurance program from low-valued to high-valued homes because insurance should really take account of the value of a structure and um, for most homes, the NFIP does not currently do this, which means low-valued homes are paying sort of more than they should, and high-valued homes are paying less than they should. And so to the extent that you think high-income people are in high-valued homes and vice versa, it's sort of a regressive way to be pricing flood insurance in a public program. Yeah, and they'll be fixing that uh, in, the, in the new reforms coming out in 2021. Okay. All right. 
And I do think, again, you know, it's, as you mentioned, insurance is an instrument that sort of touches many of our lives. And yet it's a little bit of a black box. We just sort of sign up for a policy, hope it covers the things we needed to cover. So actually understanding a little bit more about, you know, the factors that the insurance companies themselves are taking into account um, and how those are changing over time as well, I think is really, really good context. So yeah, and we've, We've been spending some time thinking about what consumers know about their risk and about insurance. And I think there really is sometimes a lack of understanding about both that can lead to suboptimal decisions on the part of homeowners. And so we're thinking about, you know, sort of types of communication that can help solve this. But let me just give you one example. Flooding is not the same everywhere in the country, right? So if you're right on the coast, the Gulf Coast, you could be subject to storm surge that literally knocks your entire house away, right? Like you have to rebuild your entire house. Well, or you could be inland far from a river, but in a little bit of a depression where every time there's heavy rain, you get two inches of water in your basement. And those are radically different risks, right? And there's everything in between. There's river flooding, there's the possibility of um, infrastructure like levees failing. There, and so those types of flood risks are not, the kind of differences in those and the loss profile of those is not often talked about, but you can kind of readily understand that the type of insurance you'd need and the type of risk reduction measures you might want to adopt for someone prone to storm surge versus a few inches of water could be really different. Um, and so we've been using the term right-sizing insurance actually based off some work we did in Portland, Oregon, where the city's been trying to kind of grapple with these issues um, to figure out how to better tailor these products to the specific needs um, of, of the specific household. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like this is a little bit of a downer question, but I want to ask it anyway. So it does sound like, you know, that despite everyone's best efforts, I imagine there are in fact times where insurance can't cover the magnitude of cost as these extreme weather events are getting larger and more significant and covering more and more properties. Um, so have there actually been instances where insurance has, for lack of a better term, failed uh, and and where you know companies have gone bankrupt or not put enough savings aside? And what can we, and if so, what can we learn from those failures? That's a really good question. And coming back to the way we were talking about how disasters have a really different loss profile than, say, automobile accidents, there's always been challenges for insurers throughout history in covering things like hurricanes, flooding, earthquakes, you know, more recently things like terrorism and cyber, right? They all have this challenging profile. But what's really become an important question, you know, in the last few years, and I think part of this was really spurred by the wildfires, we were talking about flooding, but the wildfires in California in 2017 and 2018 is, is climate change fundamentally shifting some of these extreme events in a way that's going to make them uninsurable. And that's going to be really problematic because of how important insurance is in recovery, as we just talked about. So I think there are some reforms that could help stabilize some of these markets. And we could talk through some of those, particularly in the case of wildfire. But when it comes back to to flooding and probably other perils as well, there are definitely going to be areas that become fundamentally uninsurable. And hmm. I think in the case of flooding, it's easiest to see if you think about coastal tidal flooding, or sometimes referred to as nuisance or sunny day flooding, which is increasing in some parts of the coast now with sea level rise. So think like Norfolk, Virginia, right? Some of these really ground zero areas uh, for coastal flood risk. 
And what's happening there is that flooding is not a risk anymore, or it won't be soon. It's becoming more of a certainty. And when you're sure that you're going to get flooding many days a month, that's, be, that's when insurance starts to not be the right solution, right? Because the costs of that are going to start to be really, really prohibitive. And you can't insure something that you know is going to happen for sure, right? That <laughs> because sure. you charge the entire amount of the loss, right? There's no cost savings in that case. And so as we approach that in some of these places, what we really have to focus on is not risk transfer, but actual risk reduction, right? How do we actually lower the risk of flooding in these cases? And that gets into things like changing our land use patterns, when we need to retreat from the coast, investments in gray and green infrastructure, elevating homes, right? The whole suite of mitigation measures, hazard mitigation measures that we can adopt um, for these hazards. Right. Uh, that's actually a, a good lead in, too, because it does seem like there are, you know, and I'm going to take a step back from explicitly thinking about flood insurance for a moment and talk to you a little bit about some of the new policy ideas that are circulating uh, related to paying for resilience in general. Um, and a, a couple of sort of specifics that I wanted to touch on. Um, one was a recent announcement from the state of California that it's hoping to enact a bond that allows the state to borrow money to fund future disaster relief related to climate change and sort of climate-driven uh, extreme events. So how do you feel about that sort of instrument? Or is there any insight you can share with our listeners about that sort of instrument as a way to pay for some of these future damages? Yeah, I think that's exciting to see the state starting to invest in some resiliency building projects. And they're not alone. There's other local governments and states that are starting to see the need for this too. And of course, I mean, sort of we're focusing on climate adaptation, but I feel it's very important to say that the number one thing we need to do is reduce our carbon emissions, right? To kind of sure. limit climate change. Okay. Now that we, let's <laughs> put that on the table. In my mind, the biggest limitation right now with climate adaptation is not bonding capacity, right? But bonds are what? They're just debt and you have to repay debt, okay? And municipalities have always had the ability to take on debt for their projects. The two big things I think that are really important to put on the table when it comes to climate adaptation are one, getting states and local governments to prioritize using their dollars to invest in climate adaptation and resilient, friendly um, you know, decisions about infrastructure and building and so forth. And so to the extent that like this announcement in California really signals that they are prioritizing that, I think that's really fantastic. But the second thing is, how do you pay back the debt? So that's financing. It doesn't actually get to the funding, right? Who's actually going to, at the end of the day, be paying for this? And that gets into sort of you know, the, the challenging things that always hold up <laughs> um, forward progress here, right? Like, is this federal, state, or local tax dollars? Is some of this going to be imposed on households? Are we going to be assessing fees of different types? You know, and that really gets into where you have a lot of political <laughs> debate that needs to take place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like we could easily do a podcast just on that topic. And in fact, maybe we will. <laughs> I also just wanted to quickly reference a paper that you yourself recently published on disaster insurance for ecosystems, um, in which you and your co-author, Sarah Light, proposed that natural areas could be insured against possible damage or degradation, just like real property. And it's an intriguing idea. Um, can you say a little bit more about the concepts that you explored in that paper? 
Yeah, sure. I think our interest in the topic really grew out of a recognition that ecosystems can provide a range of protective services that can be really important. So whether it's mangroves and dunes attenuating storm surge or inland wetlands storing floodwaters or sort of great infrastructure in cities to manage these heavy rainfall events, there's a lot of ways to make use of natural systems to lower disaster risk. And those also then convey a whole range of co-benefits to communities in terms of, you know, recreation and habitat and carbon sequestration and a range of other things. So they often seem like um, a really important investment. And yet, they tend to be public goods, right? And so they tend to be underprovided in the market. And so we were really curious about whether insurance could play a role in helping increase the protection and restoration of natural systems that provide these services. And it came out of a case study that got a little bit of attention, which was um, there's a coral reef off the coast of Mexico, and it's a tourist-heavy area, and the reef is part of what drives some of that tourism, right? And yet storms could damage the reef. The reef provides protection as well as recreation and all these other things, but it can be damaged by the very same storms that it's providing protection against. And it turns out, this is not my area, I'm not a restoration ecologist, but that apparently you can send in divers right away afterwards and they can reattach some of the broken coral and it can help make sure that the reef is able to sort of restore and um, thrive despite the storm event. But of course you need funding right away to be able to pay all those people to go out. Um, and so a group of hotels and the local government kind of got together and formed an association where they could pool money to help with, well, several things, including maintenance of the reef, but also to purchase an insurance policy so that they'd have funds whenever a bad hurricane came through to kind of rebuild the coral reef. And so in our paper, we look at that concept and whether it's scalable. And I think it's a very intriguing idea and points to a lot of ways in which people are starting to think creatively about risk transfer and climate. This particular example, while interesting, I think has sort of limitations in how widespread it can be because it's really for a type of situation where you need a lot of money after a disaster to restore a system. And often you could sort of pay for restoration out of other sources. It might be cheaper to self-insure or some ecosystems also don't need a lot of investment in restoration. They kind of heal themselves. So mm. I think it's sort of pockets of where where it could be useful, but where it would be useful, you know, it's definitely an important tool in the toolbox. We also looked at whether traditional property insurance, so insuring the built structures, whether you could incorporate into pricing of property insurance, the protection provided by natural systems as another way to kind of incentivize protecting these ecosystems. Hmm. Interesting. That's <laughs> starting to think about insurance in new ways. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, the value of sort of thinking out of the box around these types of solutions, I think, is really the need for sort of creative thinking in this space is clear. And so it's, I like it. Absolutely. Um, and I think there's a lot of room for, you know, and I know this is something that RFF supports is getting ecologists, you know, so those people who understand ecosystem restoration and conservation together with people who understand insurance markets and the economics and the finance to kind of come up with the right types of solutions. It really requires this interdisciplinary thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Carolyn, I thank you again for sharing all this information with us. I have learned a ton. Uh, and again, I feel like there are nine more podcasts sort of embedded in this one podcast. But given the time we have, I do want to uh, wrap this one up with our regular closing feature called Top of the Stack. 
and ask you to recommend something for our listeners that speaks to these issues or more generally to sort of natural resource, energy, environment, climate issues, um, whether it's something to read or listen to or watch, anything that you'd recommend to our, our great listening public. Sure. On the topic of disasters, there's a book I really like. It's several years old now, but it's called The Cure for Catastrophe. It's written by Robert Muir Wood of RMS, and it gives a really nice overview of the history of dealing with natural disasters from all perspectives, the need to create a holistic approach to risk management and sort of what we can learn from the history of this globally. There's one anecdote in the book and it's full of these lovely illuminating stories that I'll just share with you because um, I really liked it and it's sort of on a, a different disaster topic than we've covered so far in the podcast. He talks about a girl who was in Thailand on vacation with her parents when the large tsunami came. And they were out walking on a beach and she looked at the ocean and she had just been through a curriculum in the UK that was a sort of disaster education curriculum. And she looked out and she said to her parents, I think a tsunami's coming. The ocean's not supposed to look like that. But her parents were sort of dismissive and were like, no, no, calm down. It's fine. There's all these people out here. And they kept walking and she got more and more insistent and actually quite agitated and was like, no, this is not okay. We really have to get out of here. So, you know, to kind of calm her down, her dad still not fully, I think, believing her took her uh, into the hotel where they were staying and kind of went up to the desk. And there was someone else, um, as it turned out, a gentleman from Japan checking in. But he kind of interrupted and said, my daughter's really concerned. Can you just assure her, you know, this is okay? And the gentleman from Japan looked out at the ocean and said, I've actually lived through a tsunami in Japan. And that is absolutely a tsunami coming. You have to clear the beach immediately. And the hotel ran down and cleared everyone from the beach. And it was one of the only places in the country where no one died. And I think that is such a profound story for how important it is to raise awareness about these issues even from the age of young children, right? And maybe mm -hmm. also a story about sort of trusting our kids when they, <laughs> when they have knowledge. But um, yeah, so the book's yeah. full of those types of anecdotes. Interesting. Yeah, it is a good lesson, right? This is <laughs> like so many things, the next generation will almost inevitably know more about these challenges than we do. So it is yes, a good, and it behooves us to yeah. listen to them. So. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thank you for having me on. This was great. Yeah, thank you so much, Carolyn. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.